The technology landscape is exploding, and it has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. There's so much information out there, it can be hard to know where to start or who to trust. Your host, David Paul, is a seasoned venture capital investor that has founded his own investment firm, DWP Capital. He's a straight shooter that cuts through all the noise to bring you real and authentic conversations with investors, founders, and operators in the startup ecosystem. Join him each week to stay current with today's trends and get smarter about startups and tech investing. Today, I am interviewing Ashe. Ashe, how do you pronounce your last name? Songvi. One more time? Songvi. Songvi who is the yeah. principal at the Haystack Venture Fund. You can find him on Substack, where he writes some spectacular long-form musings on the tech landscape uh, at Ashe, A-A-S-H-A-Y at .substack.com. Ashe and I first met each other at Tall Wave Capital, where we both started as interns. It was a $13 million seed stage fund in Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, the second I met Ashe, I knew he was special. Uh, he also knew the fact that he was also special, which made him much less likable. Ashe finished his internship <laughs> and went on to Harvard undergrad, where I continued to slave away in the venture world. After graduating Harvard, Ashe did some special projects at venture funds prior to, to taking a full role at Haystack Ventures, which is a pre-seed fund in San Francisco who invested in notable companies like Instacart, Carta, DoorDash. Uh, how big is that fund, Ashe? So the current fund we're investing out of is a, a $50 million vehicle. Okay, nice. Life's good for you socially. You just moved from San Francisco back to New York. Yeah, things are good. So I was in New York uh, for a couple summers in college. Um, and then I lived in San Francisco, call it you know mid-2019 to mid-2021. Um, originally, I actually came to New York more on a whim. Uh, Kyle, like maybe summer of 2021, and then uh, ended up liking it so much. And, you know, happy to talk about this in more detail, but our job is pretty remote these days. So I ended up deciding to make the move mostly for, for kind of personal and social reasons as well. So I've been here a couple months now. Venture capitalist. How old are you, Ashe? 25. 25. That's a, that's a big catch. So again, find him on Twitter or on LinkedIn. So when did you know you wanted to get into tech? So it was probably around the time I met you. So in 2015, uh, or kind of, I just graduated high school, uh, was working at Tall Wave in Scottsdale, so from Arizona originally. I had also read at the time, um, I read Zero to One by Peter Thiel. I think it came out in late 2014. It just struck me as like a different way of thinking about the world and you know about building companies and businesses. Um, and it felt like I didn't, you know, have the clear sense at the time, but it felt like something that I wanted to be a part of, uh, at least, you know, for the foreseeable future. Um, so I'd say I first got interested in tech, startups, venture capital, sort of right before college around 2015. Right. Which is when I, you know, started as well. And tell, tell the audience what Tallwave is because not many people outside Arizona know what it is. Sure. Yeah. So I believe it's, it's kind of like a, branding slash design marketing agency um, coupled with kind of doing a lot of work for startups like around product development marketing design and they also have like a sort of complementary venture fund um, and so when i was there i was working on the sort of consulting agency side of the business but you and i met because 
um, I started doing work for Tall Wave Capital, which was the early stage uh, venture capital fund that I think was primarily at the time investing across the Southwest and Utah and places like that, mostly B2B software companies. And I remember that uh, I was handed a model and I had no idea what to do with it. <laughs> but you were really good on a whiteboard. Yeah, I was great on a whiteboard and I was great at talking, which seems to be a good uh, a good skill. Yeah, you got the bullshit. You got the bullshit. <laughs> so you can put on a blazer over a t-shirt and start oh, yeah. drawing uh, grass on a, on a whiteboard like no other. It's like the conjoining triangles of success in Silicon Valley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you, you definitely nailed um, it. I can be like an Indian Jack Barker. Yeah, no, for sure. You are the Indian Jack Barker. So you go to college and what are you doing in college, you know, as it pertains to tech? Yeah, so I um, quickly, I tried studying CS and tried studying econ. Um, the CS and the CS element was like, oh, you know, I want to go in tech. I should probably learn to be technical. I did not do well in my first kind of introductory CS class. So I sort of ruled that out and just did mostly econ and history in school. Um, on the tech side, I think my first exposure was... Why don't you think was, you did well? Sorry? Why don't you think you did well? I don't think my brain works that way. Like, I think, you know, you got to have it in you a little bit to be like more of a, an engineer and, and think quantitatively that way. I didn't feel, I felt like you could still work in technology and not be the most technical person. Um, and I also felt as if I didn't want to work as a software engineer. Um, and I thought like just doing CS would probably put me down that path. My first exposure was... Harvard's a I pretty, started, sorry to interrupt, but Harvard, Harvard's no, no, a pretty no. innovative school. Were there other types of majors, classes, degrees within technology? I know Harvard's got a venture fund that are available to students besides just joining a traditional computer science degree? I actually, I, I would maybe disagree a little bit. Like I think Harvard is great, uh, but I think that I would not describe the curriculum as innovative. I think that, uh, you know, it's probably still tied to a lot of academic theory. It's tied to, you know, eventually caters people to, to Wall Street or academia or law school or med school. But it's not at like the sort of cutting edge of, you know, how to think about company building or, you know, software, um, those kinds of things. So I think that that is actually something I was originally looking for. And I, I actually don't think I found a lot of. So where, uh, how are you able to scratch that itch when you were in your yeah. four years of undergraduate? Well, I think the good thing is as a college student, like you have, uh, you know, you have some ample time on, on the side. Uh, and I think the, the thing I also had was the Harvard EDU email address. So I just started emailing tons of people like VCs I saw on Twitter, on TechCrunch. I started emailing, you know, founders of companies that I thought were interesting. Most people didn't get back to me. Most people, you know, we'd maybe chat for coffee or something like that. And that was actually the start of a few relationships that I still have um, that, that have kind of helped me. In 2017, which was between my sophomore year and my junior year, um, I kind of thought about, okay, like I've talked to a bunch of VCs, I kind of get a sense of what it is that they do. You know, what is it that I could do to involve myself in this ecosystem, you know, without having graduated yet? And I thought one was just sourcing and being able to find kind of entrepreneurs. And so what I did was I went to about, call it 10 to 15 maybe associate to principal level people who I'd been chatting with 
And I basically told them, I'd say, hey, you know, if I can send you a deal, one or two deal, active seed deals, maybe once or twice a month, would you just be open to getting that email? Like, so there's literally no cost to them. And they were like, sure, like, I don't really know who you are, but uh, that that checks out. And so I, then I went and cold emailed a bunch of founders, kind of pitched them on connecting with a few entrepreneurs. And actually, that was how I originally ended up working on a few deals with um, a firm called Spark Capital, and then ultimately a fund called Notation Capital, which is where I got my first um, real sort of venture internship and like crack at the business in 2017 and going into 2018. Cool. So did those deals get funded? Yeah, I think on that distribution, there was two or three deals that got funded in the fall of 2017. Um, and it was just cool. Like it, I had never, you know, I think now in retrospect, it's like, you know, it seems, it seems light, but at the time I'd never seen any sort of transaction like really happen materially. Um, and so I thought it was, it was pretty interesting to see. And, you know, it, it also gave me the sense that like, Hey, you know, maybe I have a sense or a taste or judgment, um, in companies that, that could be interesting to these, these venture capitalists and these investors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so when evaluating these seed deals, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit. You're at Haystack now, which is a pre-seed seed seed fund. It's a notable pre-seed seed seed fund. And you have to look at founders uh, with a specific lens. Yeah. How did you look at founders then versus how you look at founders now? And how has that uh, gyration kind of evolved over time? Yeah, I think what what's interesting is at the time I had no, I had no like defined heuristics. I was like, do I intuitively feel good about this person? <laughs> like, <laughs> do, you know, does this person inspire confidence in me? Uh, and you know, I think literally I, that's and, and like percent of venture capital investing. By the way, <laughs> no, I think stage. I I think that's like I honestly I agree with you. I think if anything, what I am able to do a little bit more now is like pull more definition around the intuition, if that makes sense. So like, I, I like initially I get the sense and then I'm like, okay, why? What's actually interesting? And, you know, I think there's a couple of things now that I think about, right? Like, and, and I think I've talked about this a little bit before, but people who are very specific about the goals that they're trying to accomplish, um, I think is actually very rare. And I, I really value that in entrepreneurs. Like there's a huge difference between people who say, hey, my Q1 goal is getting a couple customers and um, you know hiring a few people versus you know I want to have 200k in revenue. I want to have three signed contracts by the end date of Q1, and I want to hire two full sec engineers in a back and a front end engineer. Like there's a world of difference between right. those two and, and these customers are going to come from this subset of the market within this vertical, and I think I can get them because of dot dot dot. Exactly. And and you might be wrong, right? But at least you're very clear about goal setting. So I think specificity is one thing that I, I definitely pay attention to now. And you know, once you once you start thinking about it, you really know it when you see it. Yeah. No, I agree with that completely. In the in the pre-seed seed world, I think this is just fascinating because I think we're in the people picking business, specifically in yeah. early stage. And, you know, looking at Haystack's portfolio, it seems to me very broad. There's B2B enterprise, there's B2C. In the world where there's so much capital and um, 
you know, there's so many opportunities out there. You can't be an expert in everything. How do you look at identifying the founder in the market and sizing up a good opportunity for you? One is, you know, we have a pretty generalist portfolio, but I would say there's kind of these clusters or themes uh, that emerge. And I think a lot of that was incidental and, um, you know, but in in good ways, like we have a lot sort of in design software, we have a lot in industrial software, um, you know, video tooling. So there's at times like, something will fit within that sort of one of those like clusters of companies. I do think there's an element of like, you know, when you stitch it all together over 12 to 24 month time frame, it's like, ah, oh, you know, these are kind of random bets. But I think at the time, like I definitely maybe call every two to three months have like three to four things that are top of mind for me. So it's like, oh, I'm thinking about payments in Brazil and value-based healthcare this you know, this month or two, right? And that can just come from a lot of conversations with talented people. Um, I think the other places are, you know, where do, and, and I think I probably needed to pay more attention to this over the past few years, but like, where are the smartest engineers and product builders spending their time? And sometimes you go find those people and they're at certain companies, you know, a couple, you know, maybe 10 years ago, they would have been at Facebook or Google. Um, and you just start to go spend time with them. Now, you know, maybe they're Robin Hood and Plaid. And it's like, hey, these are folks hacking on Web3, crypto. They're hacking on financial infrastructure. They're hacking on this. And so you kind of have people lead you to, you know, certain ideas and themes and categories. Um, and then I think the other thing, too, is just like, what what are like examples of large companies that are working at scale? So the example I take in like late 2020 is Snowflake, you know, as a kind of data warehouse company and like in the analytics space. And what are the adjacent opportunities around something like that, right? And so then you have all these transformation companies and data pipeline companies. And so it's thinking about what's working at scale and what are the then potentially adjacent opportunities. And that can be a bunch of different things, right? Right. So I want to talk about all that stuff. That's incredibly fascinating. And yeah. I want to go back to thematic and thesis-based investing and identifying, you know, pockets that you want to go to. But I think yeah. we do it the the audience a disservice to not talk about your experience going to the West Coast, moving into Silicon Valley, starting yeah. on, you know, doing the West Coast VC thing. And what was that like? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So um prior to 2019 and joining Haystack full time, I had um, really only worked on the East Coast as an intern. I think the amount to which just like, and, and people tell you but tell you about this, it's like everyone and everything at, at that time in San Francisco, call it pre-COVID, was just about early stage startups and tech. You know, I think big tech and people who worked in big tech was kind of its own thing. But like, you know, the social circles were dominated by, you know, venture and all this kind of stuff. So that was one element. And I think the other thing I felt, especially coming originally from Arizona and then going to um, New York where there's a more conservative financial bent was just like the almost gunslinging nature of early venture capital. Like I, you know, I joined uh, mid July, 2019. Um, I remember like the deal that happened my first or two weeks in um, it was an infrastructure company that had come out of Uber. So it's like, oh, good team. And I think I remember the original deal was supposed to be $2 million on the $10 million valuation. So two on 10, it's like 20% of the company feels fair. 
because there had been so much competitive, um, you know, so many investors vying in a competitive way to invest in that company. Um, quickly, I think the next day, I heard the deal was like four on 20. And then the next day, it was the, the capitalization was five because there's just so much demand. The investment ended up landing, I believe, a week later at like 11 million at a 60 million dollar valuation. <laughs> so it's just, it was just crazy to me. Like, and, and that happens all the time now still. Um, but I was just like, this is, this is absolutely, this is absolutely insane. And so how do you, like, how did you, were you the first ones at the table? We were, um, we didn't end up investing in that company. We met the company when it was two on 10 or three on 12. Uh, and that's what they're thinking about raising. Um, but after a certain point, especially given the way we like to invest, uh, we were comfortable just kind of bowing out of that process given that, you know, it's a couple of the bigger funds sort of vying for that, that, that seat. Yeah. So I generally lead deals. So it's, it gets very competitive. You write smaller checks, earlier stage rounds. There's usually convertible notes involved in that. Sure. So the, the process of getting a deal done, I would imagine is a lot looser because it's on the whim of the founder. He's issuing essentially notes or warrants, but in the, which are called safe notes right now yeah. uh, into the community. So really it's at the will of the founder and then get clear on what he wants to do. Yeah, I think so. Like there, you know, I would say there are instances where we do lead or co-lead rounds and actually our preference is to, our preference is to have price rounds, probably if it's over a million and a half of capital going in. I think we think it's a cleaner structure for an entrepreneur. Um, that being said, I do think that the thing you want to prioritize is, you know, if you identify the company, think about the decision tree. If you like for us, if you identify the company as something that you want to be a part of and an entrepreneur that you want to work with, there's all this element to, and, and, and sometimes why we defer to safes of like what I call deal friction. At times, like, you know, potentially unnecessary uh, structures or, you know, basically blockers to getting a deal done that introduces just risk into the deal making process. Give me now, an with example. that being said, it is, in, yeah, so an entrepreneur that you really, the simple example, an entrepreneur you really want to work with who wants to do something on a safe. And, you know, it's like two on 12 or something like that. And then you're like, actually, I want to do this uh, series seed. I want to do a price equity round and I want to take a board seat. That, you know, put, that you might be doing your job, but that in, might induce a little bit of tail risk in terms of actually closing the investment. Um, right. Because why would he, why what would I will he take say that though, if he doesn't have to give up a board seat? Exactly. Exactly. Um and a lot of those are just like, it's your fiduciary duty as an investor to do some of those things. Um, but I think it's more art than science, right? Of like knowing when to sort of pick your spots and, and you know, um, to do that, right? Versus just like getting into the good companies. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I generally take board seats or I, I call it a board presence, whether it be an observer or mm -hmm. um, because yeah. the, the level of information that you get as just a syndicate investor versus being at the table quarterly is much different. Yeah. <clears throat> because I've been on the totally. syndicate um, piece and really the only time a founder talks to you is when they need more money. And that's usually when things are going flat. 
you know, and sometimes they'll even yeah. like, they'll, they'll start doing rounds and you're not even aware of the rounds that they're doing and don't have a right to participate. And, yeah. You know, you don't want to run around. That's like being like the fat kid at a karate studio, just running around, showing them a piece of paper that they <laughs> signed that says that you would let, allow you to co-invest. Yeah. All of that makes sense to me. Uh, there's an abundance of capital out there, but going back to just, you know, understanding and trusting the founder and the investor. I mean, the last deal I did, there was a um, wording and language around budgets and budget blocks uh, with the founder. And just from the amount of transparency and clarity and communication, I just felt completely comfortable with not having that right. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think that just all depends. Are Have they, you know, historically been a good steward of capital? Do they understand math? Well, it's, 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 a, it's a risk on both sides, right? So it's just you can't win in every negotiation. Yeah, no, I, I and I think there's 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 no like one size fits all. It is very relational to your point, right? Like in the past, if an entrepreneur has showed to you they're a good steward of capital, they care about you know the it's okay to you know seed a few things, right? If it's net best for the company in the long run, and ultimately you know we're minority shareholders. Um, the other thing I'd say too is I think there's different kind of, I'd call it investor motions for like types of companies. So some companies, I feel like they're very product led. They're, um, the entrepreneurs are very creative or technical. And sometimes you just kind of need to give them space to be creative and do what they do best. And then you put more structure on the company a year or two in. Sometimes they're working in regulated financial services and there's a very clear plan and motion of what needs to get done. And they want more kind of border investor cadence around the edges. So I also think the type of business informs some of that uh, to an extent. And even the, there's like even that kind of founder market fit, right? Like Tony from DoorDash is incredibly operationally excellent, but he probably couldn't be, you know, the CEO of like a consumer social company or something like that, right? Like it doesn't fit, you know, his kind of thing. So, so I think about that as well in that kind of like, how does an investor engage with the, the company, like the type of company it is and the stage it's at matters. So you come into the VC firm, you're starting to see the competitive nature of deal making, getting in, trying to shove your capital into these deals. What is it like? How big is your team at Haystack? So there's just um, three of us full-time investors and uh, I, it's great. It's fantastic. I work with my, you know, my partner, Sunil Shah, who founded Haystack in uh, 2013. And then we have another colleague, Divya, who joined um, later last year. Fantastic. And so how is the day-to-day -day structured? It's, it's pretty sporadic. Uh, honestly, I think if I think about a typical week or a typical day, like there's always a handful of new meetings with entrepreneurs uh, in terms of either initial pitches or kind of secondary or third calls. Um, there's probably... Now that I've been working for two and a half years, I have a lot more portfolio responsibility. So I generally have a couple, either catch up calls or board calls, you know, candidate closing calls with founders in our portfolio, you know, every week. Um, and then I would say, you know, obviously I have a time where I'm just kind of trying to research or source things or, you know, do a project for a company. And then the other kind of meeting I like to have is just with, people generally sort of in the community. So people who are thinking about starting a company, but they might not, or they might go be an executive somewhere or, you know, another investor who's looking to get into a specific space that I've worked in. Um, Cause I think doing that like net 
kind of relational relationship building, um, you know, pays a lot of dividends. You never know, uh, you know, when you can kind of end up working with people, right? It's, it's a very long-term game. Um, but yeah, those are the general types of meetings that I, I, I like to have throughout the week. So $50 million fund. I know you don't want to give away too much of the secret sauce here, but from a high level, how does that, how do you look at running a 50 state or a $50 million fund in the pre-seed area as far as outcomes, expected returns? You know, we know all know that, you know, traditional venture capital has very uh, kind of binary outcomes of, of success and failure. So how do you look at that within a portfolio context and how do you underwrite to, um, you know, really, you know, companies that really have nothing or very little to knowing that if this is a big yeah. opportunity. Totally. So, um, yeah, I think generally, you know, would like exit values, you know, for any portfolio company to be over a billion dollars. I think we have sort of luxury, I'd call it, um, where, you know, smaller mid cap M&A potentially, even, you know, north of 200, 300 million based on how much we own still moves the needle for us as a fund. Um, and, you know, we don't need, if you're Andreessen Horowitz or you're Sequoia, you basically need to own a sizable chunk of a company like Coinbase or, you know, a firm or new bank, whatever, right? Like you need to own a sizable chunk of a company that's north of a $50 billion company, like a true generational company. And luckily, you know, that that's not, we would love that. And that is what we aspire to do, but that's not always the case given how early we invest. Um, and so we don't need the mega, mega, mega return to move the needle for our fund. Um, I also think in terms of distribution of outcomes, there's a lot more companies than there used to be in this call at one to $10 billion range or one to $20 billion range, either in terms of paper value or, you know, exit at IPO. And, you know, just that alone, like getting one or two of those can really drive returns for us. Um, and so the way we think about it too, is like with every investment we make, you know, given our ownership size and the potential outcome, can that return the $50 million principle on its own? That's kind of how we do the math. And then over time, as we build more conviction in companies, we like to continue to be buyers in every round of the business because for the companies that really work, that really drags up your, your return profile over time. So when you go into these companies, how often are you interfacing with the founders? Uh, I think it, 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 it depends on you know, how kind of big of a player we are on the cap table. But even like, even with that being said, I don't know if there's a huge difference in terms of if we've written a 100K check or if we've written a million dollar check, just kind of the higher end of, of what we would write in terms of the day-to-day -day engagement. Um, you know, I think there's a kind of active presence in terms of, you know, I'm either in a WhatsApp group, iMessage group or Telegram group or Signal group, <laughs> like with the founder or the founding team. Um, and so there's probably this kind of maybe every other day or, you know, weekly kind of lighter cadence where we're just texting about something. And I think in terms of more formal cadence where it's like we're sitting down, we're having a meeting, talking strategy, um, you know, at most maybe every two weeks or, or monthly. Uh, but monthly is generally the cadence for that, like more formal conversation. Gotcha. So I want to go back to what we talked about before your transition into Silicon Valley. And that was identifying themes and how you think about companies being a generalist, being, you know, a player super early. Are you just smarter than most people? 
You know, I mean, I think about no. me, like I'm, I'm an idiot. Like I can't, there's only so much information that I can put into my head. And, you know, one of the reasons why I, I believe, um, in, you know, to these relationships and these networks. And one of the reasons I'm doing these podcasts is to have really structured conversations with really intelligent people and to be yeah. able to platformize myself, uh, in a way that I could have a little bit more uh, scale from a network perspective. And, you know, mm-hmm. hopefully that would drive better outcomes through relationships of understanding specific verticals or, or, or knowing people who understand specific verticals. How, how do you, how do you retain all that information? Like how, how can you go from understanding digital payments in Brazil to uh, healthcare, right? And, and what, what drives those decisions? How much reading do you do on the topic before you start, you know, looking at companies that fit those descriptions? Yeah, I do. I sort of describe my, my style as like very wide and like an inch deep, mile wide, inch deep. Um, like that. You know, it's, like I, my, it's like my integrity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking from experience, um, yeah. <laughs> I uh, I don't know. I think like I'm definitely an infobore. Like I like I just consume a lot of sort of random content on you know YouTube, Twitter, books, etc. Um, I honestly think the biggest thing that helps me here is, and and sometimes I'll just pick up like a cue from a book or Twitter and funding announcement of like something that has like an innovative business model or, or like, Oh, this business is sort of, you know, it does this kind of interesting thing. I'm like, where else is that applicable? And like, how can I learn about that? And um, I mean, the biggest shortcut for me is just like trying to find experts in the space, like literally just cold emailing people and you never know where that leads. Like, so I think a good example, you know, I was, I was looking at stuff in the sort of, um, call it like the data and infrastructure monitoring space. So like the the incumbent public company here would be Datadog. And I was looking at sort of opportunities adjacent to that. And I saw this sort of random YouTube video. You know, I thought this one guy introduced this idea at the end. And it's just like, I looked him up, found his email on, on GitHub, and just like shot him a cold email. And then that turns out, like we had a first conversation and it was mostly just about the market. And he wasn't nice enough to volunteer his time. At the end of that call, he was like, you know what? I've actually thought about starting a company around this. And I was like, this is perfect. Um, and so I introduced him to a few founders. We spent a bunch of time together and ended up investing in his company. Um, you know, when he started it about a couple months later. So um, I, I sort of say that as a roundabout thing, but like, I think trying to find experts in the space um, has been the kind of go-to for me in terms of, um, how to get smart on things really quickly, because I just think it shortcuts a lot of time versus, you know, trying to, you know, read a book and, you know, figure out all the different ways things work. There's only so much time in the day. Yeah. And I think I'm very, um, I I think like everything works, every industry works in a like kind of supply chain or value chain. Like that's even software, right? Like there's some input and there's some output into that company there's there's like 10 companies that are very similar to it. Uh, and so if I don't understand a company or an industry or something in an industry, I'm like, what's something that's similar? Like, what's the metaphor for this? And that's been another like little mental model that's helped me uh, yeah, over time. Can you give me an example of that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, so we're, we're investors in a company 
in Latin America called Higo, uh, which is an accounts payable business. But now it's kind of in B2B payments and banking. And I think, so when I first met the founder in 2020, there's really this kind of software play for, for merchants. Um, but I'd seen companies in the US like Ramp and Brex, which are really focused on getting super deep in payments. And ultimately concluded like Higo, given the, the nature of the Latin American market, Mexico, Colombia, Peru, like it's, it's not really a software company. It's like a payments and fintech company. Um, so I think drawing out that metaphor for a market that I didn't understand the, the Mexican kind of small business, you know, retail market um, and like what their needs were. But, you know, seeing the analogy here in the U.S. Uh, was, was useful for me. Interesting. Okay. So you talked about yeah. following smart people. One of my, um, I'm a fanboy yeah. of him, Howard Lindzen. He identified in a mm-hmm. recent podcast and newsletter that a lot of these smart people that have worked in these big companies, they're breaking away. They're leaving their cushy 500 to a million year jobs to start doing Web3 projects. Are you seeing that? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, and I've talked to a lot of people, um, you know, either portfolio companies or companies that I know that are trying to recruit great engineers. Um, and they are losing them to either crypto companies like OpenSea or Coinbase, or those engineers are starting things of their own. And, you know, it's for a couple of reasons. One is just the pure financial side of it. Like, it's a good, if you, if you already have a lot of money, it's nice to speculate on crypto. Uh, and the other element is, um, I feel as if like some, they're actually, like some engineers are very drawn to hard technical problems. and there's elements of that within the crypto ecosystem, Ethereum, scaling, you know, Solana applications, like some of these things are non-trivial. And so I think engineers are drawn to it at times because it's just, it's where some of the hardest like math problems are. How much time are you spending on crypto? Um, not, I, I struggle with this. Uh, I should probably spend more time on it. I feel like the, the line I heard from Sunil is that you can't uh, minor in crypto. Um, <laughs> and, like uh, and uh, yeah, I agree with that. That's a, that's a hot take. Just, I, I, I agree with it because there are some investors who have either built out their brand, they're built out their support ecosystem to focus 110% on crypto. So if you're one of the best founders in the space, you know, why wouldn't you, if you have the opportunity, why wouldn't you work with, you know, Paradigm or Andreessen who have dedicated people working on it 110% of the time? And and to that point, there's a lot of like social proof in crypto. Like, oh, I raised from XYZ fund. That might be a little bit different than, you know, the traditional Sand Hill players. You know, the way I thought about getting exposure, I, I, I think the other thing, that is interesting though, is like crypto enables you to do things with it personally. So I hacked around on NFTs or DeFi stuff just on the side, like outside of Haystack. And I think that's been an interesting way to learn. Um, in terms of what we you might think about investing in it, it, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I in mean, terms of what we might think about investing, it's like the stuff that you could even build as a traditional SaaS company, but it's within crypto, right? So Chainalysis, Anchorage, you know, Fireblocks, which is like security for crypto. Like those are effectively SaaS companies and they, they don't have a token or anything like that. And so I think that's the type of stuff, you know, we would invest in this kind of bridge between what yeah, and what it's, it's the picks and the shovels, right? 
I took a position mm-hmm. in Coinbase um, because I just think whether the crypto market is good or it's bad, people are either buying and selling it and crypto is, and Coinbase is still making money on each of those transactions. So I'm, I'm very bullish on the infrastructure around it, uh, specifically the brand, you know, the, the trust it's building within the community. I think it's going to be a giant, uh, you know, in the next yeah. couple of years. Yeah. Personal disclosure. I think the funny thing I, I about own, that is I like do own those Coinbase. I'm pumping, I'm, pump, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm pumping my book. I do not shame. own any Coinbase. Yeah, I own yeah. Coinbase. I, I don't own any Coinbase, but I, I probably should, honestly. It's like it's trading quite low relative to its cash flow. And it's like exchanges are wonderful businesses uh, because they're very capital efficient. And I, I think of Coinbase as like three businesses, right? It's the retail brokerage. It's the prime brokerage for institutional investors because BlackRock, Fidelity, those guys don't know how to get crypto onto the balance sheet of like the largest investors in the world or, you know, big businesses. And then it's like Coinbase Cloud, which is basically how do developers interact with the blockchain in a more efficient way, elegant way. It's like AWS, right? AWS for crypto. So that's Coinbase Cloud. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about some of the pieces that you put out because they really are fascinating. Uh, more specifically, the um, buying spree in your last Substack. What do you t- give me your thoughts around kind of the main points um, about the acquisitions that are going to happen? And do you yeah. feel any? First of all, say it. Say what it is, and then you know I have a counterpoint. To yeah. It. Okay. Yeah. So um, I think there are a lot more companies in the sort of technology universe um, that either have gone recently gone public or are private technology unicorns in the call it one to $50 billion range. Um, The way to become like a really, really, really big company is to become a multi-line product company. It's it's very rare that companies on one product become hundred plus billion dollar companies, right? Um, And one way to do that, generally the way to do that is to build your way there. But um, think about, you know, Google buying YouTube or Facebook buying Instagram, like acquisitions and being acquisitive with either your stock or the cash on your balance sheet is a great way to grow. So there's a real incentive for a whole slew of newer companies to grow through um, acquisition. On the flip side, uh, there are a lot more startups being started uh, and some are raising a lot of money. Some aren't raising a ton of money. And, you know, naturally, not every company is really going to work out or some companies might feel like their market size is smaller. So just think the universe on both the buyer and the sort of seller in terms of companies selling themselves, that those universes have expanded. And I think that uh, is the recipe for a natural like collision course in terms of um, just more M&A happening. Uh, And the other point I have is that a lot of companies, in order to really build yourself up, you need a lot of talented people working at the same place. And I see a lot of instances of, you know, uh, someone starting up a company and in a universe, maybe five or six years ago, they would have joined as the first engineer or they would have joined as the 20th employee at a different company. And so ultimately, I think some of that will consolidate back. And you'll have companies that develop as more centers of excellence as the fragmentation kind of reconsolidates. Yeah, it was it was definitely a great article. 
my, as I reread it this morning, though, I was thinking to myself, you know, a lot of these SaaS companies are down 30 to 50% yeah. in the public markets. And I think the worst place to play right now is late stage venture. I think, you know, all, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of valuation risk associated with that. Yeah. You know, there's 20 tigers right now that are, that are deploying sure. capital. Um, how do you see that? being played out with public companies burning cash, valuations are getting hacked, shareholders, you know, even though these companies might have been up 200% over the last couple of years, it's what have you done for me lately? Yeah. And how do you think that's going to affect the funding environment? Yeah. So if you think about the public environment, right, like companies like, you know, any sort of product-led horizontal enterprise software company, whether it's Twilio, Cloudflare, whatever, like they were... <laughs> they're really good businesses and I'm a long, I'm a long-term believer in those types of companies, but their valuations were valuing them. Like if you really did the math, like, you know, the multiples were much, much higher than a, you know, Google or Facebook, et cetera. And it's not like, you know, Google, Facebook, et cetera, are mature businesses, but they're still really growing. And those are some of the best businesses in the world. And so to have a valuation on premium on some of those, high-flying SaaS companies being better than, you know, Amazon, Google, Facebook, there's actually some correction that happens. Now, it got even crazier if you look at the private markets when, you know, there's a handful of companies sub a million in revenue, I'd call it, in, again, in those categories, horizontal software, broad infrastructure plays, you know, sub a million in revenue getting valued at over a billion or $2 billion. Uh, now, there's a whole lot of other things you know, that go into there. But I think one thing I'm keeping an eye on in early 2022 is, is there a late stage kind of private market correction? Um, I don't think I've seen that, but it's only been a couple of weeks in 2022 so far. But I do think given what you've seen in the public markets, like is the IPO window or the direct listing window closed for these private businesses? I probably think so. I think the other thing I think about is like, if some of these companies are not hitting their valuation skis, will there be opportunity for call it uh, like more structured finance at the private, at the private stage, at the late stage? So what does that mean? Like think about the deal that Silver Lake did with Airbnb, right? Airbnb at the height of coronavirus pandemic um, had a down round, I think, uh, effectively just because they needed cash on their balance sheet. And so they got warrants, Silver Lake got warrants at like an $18 billion valuation. Yeah, I think you'll, you'll just see more more financing like that. Liquidation preferences, extra warrants, some creative things, nothing to maybe necessarily mark the market down because that affects everybody from a return yeah. perspective. But uh, yeah, I like, like that if you're a creative financing. If you're a creative late stage investor with a big balance sheet, you understand technology and you have a structured finance skill skill set, you're probably about to make a killing because there's no way the 900 private unicorns or whatever that number is, there's no way they're all going up, right? Like many are good businesses, but just overvalued. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, given that they're burning so much cash, uh, you know, they'll, a lot will have to go in for, for extra cash in six to 18 to 24 months. I have a question from the audience. Yeah. And this is from John Cottle at Notaroo. 
his question is, you know, he's an operator and he's, he's not sure uh, the, he's not the only tech executive that struggle with this, but tackling when, you know, is the appropriate time for a company to raise capital and becoming intellectually honest around that. Um, people would love to hear your opinions on that. And like it's sort of at the early stages? At the early stages. Yeah, I think it's when you feel as if you've kind of significantly de-risked an element of your business. Um, and that can be around a customer, that can be around a key hire you make, but you feel as if you're in a good shape. And I also think, I also advise entrepreneurs, you know, some people say, oh, I'm a year in, so I should raise my seed round. Like don't do it based on that time duration. But if you have an idea of how much you want to raise, have a real plan for it, you know, over the next call it 12 to 18 to 24 months of aggressive kind of milestones that you want to hit. But again, I do think it's hard in this environment because, you know, a lot of companies raise their seed, their series A, their series B, effectively off narrative, right? And it can be hard to tell like, oh, how should I think about, you know, what sort of quantitative milestones I should hit when I see a competitor who has nothing, you know, raise a big growth round or something like that. What is the value of bootstrap? And this is from Richard Rodriguez, uh, who's the CEO of KickPost. What is the value of bootstrapping uh, to the po- uh, to the point of proof of concept, initial traction? I think that's great. I think more entrepreneurs should do that. Like I, I think a lot of people, um, because I think once you start to either you bootstrap or you put something out in market, you just have a much clearer sense of what you need to build for the like call it year one through two through three um, versus, you know, if you have more of the idea, right. And I think the other value you get from bootstrapping is you potentially face a less dilutive round when you raise your first financing, because investors may give you some credit for de-risking the business and are okay taking a higher valuation versus, you know, starting de novo. What about, the amount of capital that's in the uh, early stages now. I think I heard a stat that there's 3x the amount of seed investors that there were two years ago currently deploying capital. So how do you think about... I I, I was the same way. I used to love bootstrap businesses. It showed grit. It showed uh, scrappiness. It showed um, you know equity sensitivity, which means if they're going to be that sensitive with their equity now, they're going to be you know sensitive to their uh, to my equity later. But how do you think about that yeah. when there's just so much capital out there and everything is just getting really competitive? Um, chances are, if you're starting a, a solution to a product, there's probably two or three in market that are buying ads. Yeah, I think it's a good question. Um, I still think for a lot of things early on, like this is more, I think thinking about competitors, you know, buying ads, et cetera, like it feels like it's more relevant at the growth stages versus at the early stages when, you know, really it's just like, are you delivering a good product? Can you potentially hire better than your customers? Because that's, that's a really good point. And, you know, I see yeah. the average seed valuations coming, or excuse me, the average seed check sizes going from two to four to five to six. And why do you need that much capital to find product market fit? You're not hiring employees to find product market fit for you. I mean, at that stage, in the seed stage, you should be intuitively working with your customers yeah. to help them try to solve the problem. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I tend to agree with that. I think the, the, what you, 
the re- how, how would I say this? The reason the, the money comes up is because the investors are incentivized to put more money to work at lower valuations, right? Like you'd rather, if you are, name your large Sandhill Venture Capital Fund and you are managing a $500 million portfolio and you're, you're getting pressure from the tigers of the world that are moving downstream and they're moving into your territory, right? You would rather write an entrepreneur a $4 million check for you know 15% of their company, 12% of the company, than a million dollar check for 10% or whatever. Just because that's moving more of the needle of your fund and your time and your energy. And so entrepreneurs, I think, are reacting to this incentive that's coming from a certain group of investors. And uh, then they're like, oh, I should just raise more, right? And you know, once you see your friend do it, then you're like, oh, I can do that too, right? And it starts this very reflexive cycle that I don't think is grounded in a lot of fundamental reality. Besides, I think the only thing potentially is like, if you're working on something very technical from the get-go, some of the engineering talent, like the scout, the salaries have just skyrocketed. And so you may need to pay a little bit more early on. But I don't think it's an order of magnitude in the way that the valuations have risen or the and the capital going in. Question number two. These are really good questions. Uh, insight between the valuation gap that investors and founders typically have and how to resolve it in a win-win manner. In terms of like what the like a difference, a delta in the entrepreneur's expectations of, you know, what the price should be and what the investor thinks. Yeah, I have an easy answer to this question. It's when you both walk away unhappy, both the investor being, and the founder. And, and what, <laughs> that the, the, the yeah, investor I, thinks I he like overpaid, <laughs> and and the founder thinks he underpaid. I think at that point, everyone wins. Yeah, I I think so. Um, I think a lot of investors. Like I talked to a lot of investors and there's, you know, how did you pay XYZ valuation for this deal? And I was like, I just asked, <laughs> like, you know, uh, and I think the, like, I, so I'm like, I'm looking at it from the investor angle. Like I think a lot of investors are feeling like they're overpaying for deals, but I'm like, there's a certain amount of risk you're taking investing in this early stage company as a fiduciary to your capital base you should be getting paid for the risk you take. I think there's ways to, you know, have that conversation with entrepreneurs where they feel like it's a fair bargain for both sides. Um, And there's things, you know, that you can do. I think some things I've seen get done. I'm like, if we can handshake on this price today, like I will close, I will wire you money tomorrow effectively. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and, and things like that to make an entrepreneur's life easier. There's value Um, to speed. But I, I do agree. I think there's a mismatch in terms of incentives uh, between entrepreneur and investor when they're negotiating the the round. When you're more aligned is when the next round is happening, right? Correct. Um, yeah, and you're you're a current shareholder. Exploring how uh, Richard Rodriguez again exploring how the raise process can be improved and simplified for both sides. I think more. I don't think nearly enough investors do their homework, like even you know before meeting an entrepreneur. So just like do five minutes of work as an investor to ground yourself. No, I I completely agree with that. I mean, I've seen it always happens with the senior level partners. They want you to spoon feed the deal to them when you know they yeah <laughs> the, the you know the the entrepreneurs had five management calls with you. And and you know I think some of the best investors I know you know, they'll run an entrepreneur through a process 
And one of their sort of tenets is not to have an entrepreneur repeat themselves. So they ask different questions for each meeting. That like that is the exception. That never happens. <laughs> like you talk to a founder who's pitched a big VC firm, and they have literally repeated themselves every single time at, 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 on every call. Um, so, and, and, and for founders, I think a lot of founders are, you know, I think because it may be been burned in the past by investors, but it's just the flip side of this. It's like share more of your materials beforehand so people can have an informed conversation. And so you use the time you spend either on Zoom or in person to just to get to know each other more personally. And maybe you can even do some of the business DD like async, right? And because that, that 30 minute time is valuable in terms of like just trying to get to know the other person. Like you can do the the, the, the homework on the company on your own time. Absolutely. And I feel like if founders really wanted to make this a super seamless process and investors wanted to make it a super seamless pos- a process, it would be. AngelList would be transacting larger and larger deals. But I still think that this is very much a people business and people don't want their information out. People want to get a feel for it. And the inefficiencies in this market create are the opportunities to create alpha, right? And um, on both sides. And specifically in yeah. the early stage when we're figuring things out in the late stage, when we're seeing like, you know, where, where's this company going to be? And I, um, I think too much early stage investor behavior is driven by, oh, what will the late stage investors look at? And the late stage investors are always very thematic and top down in the way they think. And they look at more mature businesses. But the best opportunity is just kind of slapping your face as an early stage investor. Like they don't fit, oftentimes they don't fit neatly into a bucket. Um, and you kind of have to invest in the cool kids before they're cool. Yeah, absolutely. So Ashay, who do you like to follow? Um, in terms of other, other VCs? Other VCs, thought leaders, people in the in technology. Yeah, I think you know, I think some of the sort of common ones like Fred Wilson and, and his blog, AVC, I really, really enjoy. Um, there's a gentleman in New York called Roger Ehrenberg, and he's at at Info Arbitrage, and he writes like a very wonderful, excellent kind of tactical blog about both early stage investing and also um, like firm building. Um, so those are two two folks whose whose pieces I really and, and their work over many years I've really enjoyed. Yeah, and then the David Paul Substack you follow daily, obviously too. Of course, DWP. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I call it Ramblings of David Paul. It's really just kind of the schizophrenic. I like it, man. I yeah. like the photos. Not enough people put photos in their blogs. It's cool. Yeah, you have to. You have to. Uh, yeah, yeah, it makes it more it, personal. It shows it's our, usually our at golf like 4, game. 4 a.m. in the morning, and it's just something that's top of mind um, as I get done with yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. my routine. But anyway, Ashay, it's been great to have you on the show. We're going to have to get you back on. Uh, one more question. What is the best business advice or advice you know in this technology investment game that you've ever received? Oh, you put me you put me on the spot here. <laughs> what what did David tell me? Uh, I, don't I don't think it's for the you know for the listeners. Um, there's there's a line that I think I I might butcher. That's you know it's 
venture is really about kind of good judgment and good judgment comes from experience, which comes from bad judgment. Uh, and, you know, I, I could probably talk about that. Go ahead. Mic drop. That was incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it took me a little bit to, to remember, but that's, that's, I think about that probably every day. I heard something similar um, from somebody else in, uh, in this business. And they say, you either learn with work or money, but no one makes mistakes and, and gets experience without getting away with, with either. So yeah, you either have to work your way out of it or pay your way out of it. And uh, sometimes it's both. Yeah. Cool, man. All right, my man. Well, well thank you so much for, you. for having me. This is great. Yeah. Any portfolio companies you're particularly excited about? You want to pump your book like every other investor on a podcast? <laughs> there's no, there's 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 a bunch, um, but you know, companies that, that that I'm really excited about. One called Buff, which is you know an infrastructure company based up in in Canada that just announced their Series B. Another business called Red Panda, you know, another infrastructure company, and then I mentioned them earlier in the podcast, Higo, the payments company down in, in Mexico. I'm super excited about so. Just a handful and, and a more bunch more coming down the road. Awesome. All right, Ashe. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to, uh, if you liked what you heard, please subscribe, tell your friends about it. And if you want to reach out to me or uh, you can find my name at David Paul at Substack.com or you you know, one of the local Apple store or the Apple. Um, I, I, what is this? What is this? A podcast? This is a podcast. This is a, this is a podcast. I iTunes. iTunes. iTunes and it. Spotify, right? Yeah, right. iTunes and Spotify. If you want to go there, you know, look at my name, David Paul. You can subscribe to The Capital Stack. Anyway, we will be on every Thursday. Uh, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to The Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.